I still vividly remember the day, a shocking moment in my childhood, when I was around five years old. My younger brother and I were marching around the house, playing something like follow the leader. And we marched into our parents' room where I saw a hairbrush up on their dresser, and which I promptly grabbed to use as either a sword or a baton or something. My brother thought that was a great idea too. Problem is, he was too short to see what was up on the dresser. And so he just reached up, felt around, grabbed whatever he could, which full-fisted, happened to be my mother's burning hot curling iron. <laughs> so he burst into tears. I just stood like, I was shell-shocked, <laughs> horrified. And I learned a valuable lesson, even early on. If you are leading people, be careful where you lead them. We all follow someone's lead in life. We let certain people guide how we think, how we feel, how we act. Whether it's your parents or your siblings, your friends, your teachers, church leaders, politicians, celebrities, whomever. Someone's got your ear. Someone's got your ear. You, you read, watch, or, or emulate some people much more than others. And you are usually trying to follow in the footsteps of someone whom you respect. Now, these days, at least once we grow up, we often choose our own authorities. And they don't need to be someone who's necessarily older or stronger than us. We just may like them, like what we hear, like what we see from them. So, who are your chosen leaders in life. Who do you follow and where are they leading you? On the flip side, who might see you as a leader? And where are you leading them? Today, God's word is going to speak to both those in authority and those under authority, which means all of us. Right? And, and depending on the context of our life, some of us may qualify as both. But God's people need godly leaders. So we have to be careful whom we follow and how we lead. Go ahead and turn with me to Deuteronomy 16, where we'll start today. Deuteronomy 16. Remember, as we come to this book, Israel was on the verge of the promised land. And at the same time, Moses was on the verge of dying. And he knew this. Over the past several decades, he had been their prophet and judge, and their leader. And so who would lead once he was gone? It's a very big question. So here, Moses actually describes some various leaders that they would need to appoint soon and follow. It makes sense that authority and leadership would be addressed at this point in Deuteronomy as Moses has used the Ten Commandments as some of it a structure for his giving of the law here. And we've gone through the first four commandments. The fifth is all about honoring your parents. And when we're born, the, the first authorities we encounter in life are our parents. But they are certainly not the only authorities we deal with. So proper honor and submission to authority is really the foundation of what we're going to read today, particularly within the context of God's community, which was Israel then, church now. If you have the wrong leaders in life, they can lead you into terrible places, just like I unintentionally led my brother to burning himself on a curling iron. There are countless scandals of leadership in our world and in the church today. Misguided leaders have, have guided people into abuse and confusion, apostasy, and worse. So you want to make sure that you're following the right people. But how do you do that? How do you know? What do godly leaders look like? And if you want to lead, what should you be pursuing? I think we'll see four characteristics of godly leaders from God's word today. The first one we're going to see is this. That God's people 
should follow godly leaders who pursue justice and holiness. Okay, God's people should follow godly leaders who pursue justice and holiness. You can see this from the description of the judges that Moses wanted appointed. Look, starting with me in verse 18. So Deuteronomy 16, verse 18 says this. You shall appoint judges and official officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. And you shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice, and only justice, you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So like righteous judgment, justice, only justice. You know when someone's sworn into court and they, they say, swear something like that they're going to say the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? like an ancient version of that, except for people on the other side of the bench, for the judges. Judges who are appointed in each town, it says, would, be much, would be, provide much of the local government for Israel. They often acted as a combination of law enforcement, judge, jury, and even executioner. So they were to, in this important role, they were to never pervert or distort or twist justice. Remaining impartial, refusing bribes. You ever watch a, a show where a judge has to recuse themselves from a case because they've got some personal connection and therefore they cannot remain unbiased? That's good that they do that, right? Or maybe you've seen a judge not do that and they end up pursuing their own personal vendettas. Or you find out that the judge is in the criminal's pocket or a mob's pocket. You know the injustice you feel then? Basically, this passage was a guard against judicial corruption and thus injustice in Israel. But it was also deeper than that, as justice and righteousness were things that were deeply valuable to God. If any leader doesn't care about these things, they don't care about what God cares about. You might not think that, that justice would come into play too much in church life. But it does from time to time. Especially if we are to pursue church discipline. We may also be tempted at times to pervert justice by protecting people that we know from, say, allegations of misconduct or even criminal activity. Hundreds of churches are learning this lesson the hard way these days. So, godly leaders must pursue justice. They also must pursue holiness, which is likely more readily noticeable in church life. A leader will either encourage people towards holy living or away from it. The next few sentences seem rather random and they might not seem to fit here. But look in verse 21. It says, You shall not plant any tree as an Asherah besides the altar of the Lord your God that you shall make. You shall not set up a pillar which the Lord your God hates. Those are idolatrous things that they were setting up. Next verse, you shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep in which is a blemish, any defect, whatever, for that is an abomination to the Lord your God. So why is this here? Well, these were, would have been unholy sins that people may have been led into back then. Also, judges may have needed to preside over court cases dealing with these issues. But essentially, leaders... Lead in the way we worship. Leaders lead in the way we worship. That's why this is here. Judges were the first line of defense against idolatry or laziness in worship. And then we see just how far their pursuit of holiness was to go. Starting in verse 2. 
It says, if there is found among you within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, a man or woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshiped them or the sun or the moon or any of the hosts of heaven which I have forbidden, and it is told you and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently, and if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hands of all the people, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. Now some of you are likely going, yikes. Right? We read actually a very similar passage recently. You can look it up, but we addressed then the, the seriousness of sin, this matter of, of stoning. Remember that we tend to severely underestimate both sin and God's holiness. And this is why this bothers us. We don't think sin is that serious. We don't think God is that holy. And this case was actually dealing with breaking the greatest commandment of all. The one major difference between previous passages and this one is the evidence of witnesses. Like it said in verse 6, on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. This emphasizes the desire for truth and for justice to prevail among God's people. And that requirement, not talking about death, but talking about two or three witnesses, that requirement is also repeated by both Jesus and Paul in the New Testament, saying that any charge that's entertained by the church must be on the account of two or three witnesses. Right? Justice still matters. The next paragraph explains what a judge was to do if a case was too big or difficult for them. Look with me, verse 8. It says, If any case arises requiring decision between one kind of homicide and another, one kind of legal right and another, or one kind of assault and another, any case within your towns that is too difficult for you, then you shall arise and go up to the place that the Lord your God will choose. And you shall come to the Levitical priests and to the judge who is in office in those days, and you shall consult them, and they shall declare to you the decision. Then you shall do according to what they declare to you from that place that the Lord will choose, and you shall be careful to do according to all that they direct you. According to the instructions that they give you, and according to the decision which they pronounce to you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside from the verdict that they declare to you, either to the right hand or to the left. The man who acts presumptuously by not obeying the priest who stands to minister there before the Lord your God, or the judge, that man shall die. And you shall purge the evil from Israel." And all the people shall hear and fear and not act presumptuously again. Essentially, one sentence or one verdict can be a strong deterrent for everyone else. Chris Wright further explains, he says, The authority of the higher court is final. Its decisions are to be meticulously carried out under the threat of death for contempt of court. That's what this is. Which is really contempt for Yahweh himself. Disobeying a court's verdict was acting presumptuously, Moses says. They were presuming that they could live however they want. They didn't need to submit. They could disregard God-given authority. In these passages, we should hear some fairly strong warnings for us today. Whenever a spiritual leader loosens up their view on holiness or sin, watch out. If someone tells you that, that sin is not that serious, don't believe them. If they ad adopt the world's definitions of right and wrong instead of God's, 
and both here at Calvary on the outside world, perhaps you listen to podcasts, or read books, or watch videos, be on the lookout for, for perversions of either justice or holiness, because good leaders, godly leaders, will care about both justice and holiness, and they will take those very, very seriously. God does. It's all they. Moses now turns his attention from future judges to future kings. In verse 14, it says, When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. So, as long as they're okay with God's choice of king, having a king would be fine. They just had to also make sure that this was a, a fellow Israelite taking the throne. Moses then lays out three really remarkable restrictions for the king himself. In verse 16 it says, Only he, that's the king, must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Now these were remarkable because ancient kings were usually known for precisely these three things. Building up large forces of horses and chariots for their military. Collecting wives in a large harem for both pleasure and political alliances. And amassing hordes of wealth and treasure, silver, gold, precious gems. Wright explains, these were the defining marks of kings worthy of the title. Weapons, women, and wealth. Why else be a king? Clearly, the issue is not merely if Israel should have a king or not, but what kind of king that should be. The value of a king is assessed solely by the extent to which he will help or hinder loyalty to the Lord. A king who will trust not in God, but in his own defenses. A king whose heart is, turns away because of many wives. A king whose great wealth leads to the snares of pride. Such a king will quickly lead the people in the same disastrous directions. History proves the point with depressing regularity. Would a king's heart be undivided so, as, so that he could lead people in loyalty to the Lord? That's all that mattered. And here's what I believe we should learn from this. God's people should follow godly leaders who follow the Lord alone. God's people should follow godly leaders who follow the Lord alone. When Israel did later end up asking for a king, the judge Samuel had led Israel for a long time, and, and people were worried about what would happen after Samuel died. So they came to him and demanded, Give us a king! like all the other nations around us have. Even if he wasn't thrilled, God granted their request, just like he gave permission here. He gave them Saul as a king, a man whose character lagged far behind his good looks. And, and his reign ended, uh, ended up being just this roller coaster of disaster. His successor was David, the most famous of all Israel's kings, and one of the few that came closest to reaching the ideals of Deuteronomy 17. David's son Solomon, however, perhaps brought this passage most to life in a bad way. 1 Kings 10 and 11 describes in succession his vast wealth, his huge military, and his massive harem. He had so much gold 
that it says that silver was completely devalued in his day. He had so many horses and chariots that he had to, to devote entire cities to them. And by the way, most of those, it says, were actually brought and imported from Egypt. And he had 700 wives, 300 concubines, who did exactly what verse 17 predicted. They turned his heart away from the Lord to false gods. For we who are leaders in our homes, in the church, let this sober us up. Any blessings that God gives you, any authority that he entrusts to you are not for your own benefit, but for the benefit of those you lead. Randy Stinson says that parents in particular should see that their authority in the family is given to them by God and they are to assert this authority for the good of their children and not themselves. See, authority is as a gift from God to us. Authority is, is one way for us to show our devotion is to God and not ourselves. How we exercise it. If we boss people around for our own selfish needs, we are abusing our authority. Same goes in the church. Consider that three of the qualifications for elders in 1 Timothy 3 are that they must be not violent but gentle, a husband of one wife, and not a lover of money. Interesting correlation there. Why? Why are these important? Because otherwise, power, lust, or wealth can divide your devotion to the Lord, which will almost always lead those under your charge astray as well. On the other hand, exemplifying a walk with God will often have the reverse effect. Look in Deuteronomy, verse 18 here. It says, And when the king sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. This was to be one of their very first acts as king. Now, many political inaugurations or coronations today involve being sworn in on a Bible. None that I know of involve writing out a Bible. <laughs> but, of course, this is talking about only the first five books of the Bible, the, the Torah. But still, can you imagine the, the powerful messages this was, would have communicated to that new king as he spent hours just transcribing out line after line on a scroll? He'd come to understand the, the history of his people, how God had saved them, and he'd doubtless get this idea of the supreme value of God's law. So he didn't only have to write the law out. Look at verse 19. It says, And it shall be with him, what he wrote out, it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So he had to keep this, this personal copy of the law nearby so he could read from it every day. And so he would learn to, to humbly live by it, leading the way for his people. In Israel, kings were not legislators of the law. They were fellow recipients of the law. A, a higher authority had delivered it to them, and the king himself was subject to it. He was not above the law. Now, he wasn't even supposed to see himself as above other people, it says. As a leader of God's people, he needed God's word as much as or more than any of them. 
See, good leaders need to first learn to be followers themselves. Leading by example. And that means humbling yourself under God's authority and submitting to His Word. Be a follower first. Like Paul boldly challenged people in 1 Corinthians 11. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Follow me as I follow Him. Leadership guru John Maxwell, you may have heard this proverb before, says, he who thinks he leads but has no followers is only taking a walk. <laughs> Daniel Block says that we have to modify that for believers, saying that actually leaders in the church must be taking a walk, <laughs> walking according to the revealed will of God. If we're not already walking this way, we deserve no followers, period. Wendy Elsop says it this way, Beware a leader who wants to be an authority in your life without having any in theirs. Submitting ourselves to the authority of God's word really should be a, a, a daily thing for all of us. It's not a daily rule for Christians, but it is a daily need. that We live on every word from the mouth of God. It says here, And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes, and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. If reading it was good for them to do every day, it's good for us too. Doing so just here, was a way to learn to fear God, to obediently keep his word, to keep ourselves humble, to stay faithful to the truth, and to be blessed by God. If any of those are a desire for you, I hope they are, we've got to get into the word. We've got to submit ourselves to God daily. And if you want to lead, godly leadership begins with devoting ourselves to God's word. So parents, is your parenting saturated by scripture? Your daily habits? Fathers, husbands, are you leading your home love God's word. Elders, deacons, small group leaders, Sunday school teachers, are you learning to follow Jesus first? And then out of that is your leadership humble, faithful, soaked in God's word. And everyone else, it's okay to insist that our leaders possess these qualities. Moving on to chapter 18. We see yet another type of leader for the Israelites in the priests. Here in Deuteronomy, Moses doesn't go into the details of the priests' roles and duties. Those are thoroughly recorded elsewhere. Here he basically explains their legal rights. Describing what people were to give to the priests and what the priests could eat. This makes for a, a rather unique point for us to take away from these verses. And that is this. God's people should follow godly leaders who are content receiving what God promises. Okay? God, God's people should follow godly leaders who are content in receiving what God promises them. Let's see what I mean. Verse 1, it says, The Levitical priests, all the tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the Lord's food offerings as their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance among their brothers. The Lord is their inheritance as he promised them. Now put yourself in the Levite's shoes for a minute. 
Okay? Everyone is all excited, about to enter the promised land, and they're going to get their own cities and homes and land and flocks, but not you. You don't only get this challenging, meticulous, never-ending job as a priest. Right? And you'd be completely dependent on the offerings and sacrifices that were brought for your own sustenance. How do you feel? Uh, Moses, I think we got the short end of the sick here. But actually, no, that wasn't the case at all. They had the better deal, believe it or not. What they were promised is God. The Lord himself would be their inheritance. Just think about that. And the Lord would take good care of them by requiring his people to take care of them. That's what he says here. In verse 3 it says, And this shall be the priest's due from the people, from those offering a sacrifice, whether an ox or a sheep. They shall give to the priest the shoulder and the two cheeks and the stomach, the first fruits of your grain, of your wine and of your oil, and the first fleece of your sheep you shall give him. For the Lord your God has chosen him out of all your tribes to stand and minister in the name of the Lord, him and his sons for all time. Everything that God received would be shared with the priests. And that was actually the first and best of everything. In a similar way to these verses, Paul actually insists that the church be sure to take good care of their leaders in the New Testament. Being a priest a minister for the Lord. It wasn't a bum deal. And this passage, this law, was meant to ensure that it stayed that way. Same idea in verse 6 to 8. It says, And if a Levite comes from any of your towns out of all Israel where he lives, and he may come when he desires, to the place that the Lord will choose, and ministers in the name of the Lord as God, like all his fellow Levites who stand to minister there before the Lord, then he may have equal portions to eat, besides what he receives from the sale of his patrimony. Patrimony just refers to whatever he received from his parents before he left. Okay? So, essentially, if, if some priest wanted to relocate to be near the tabernacle or temple, they could do that. And they could work alongside the other priests, receive equal portions of food. In other words, they weren't to be treated poorly as a transplant or a newbie. They'd be given an equal share. And the priests here receive, they'd be given plenty by God. But, but, that's still all they were to receive. Like verse 2 said, they shall have no inheritance among their brothers. The Lord is their inheritance as he promised them. The Lord had these great promises for them, but they weren't to demand more. They shouldn't even ask for more. Likewise, any time that a Christian leader goes after a multi-million dollar home or private jet, or a lot less than that too, red flags should go up. Right? This exposes something of their heart. And as 1 Timothy says, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. Godliness with contentment. Now, there is no separate class of priests under Jesus. In a way, we're all priests now. But we can all take something away here. God's going to provide for our needs. He is our inheritance more than anything else. And with that, let us be content. It should tell us, may we all care for our leaders, but may those of us who are leaders be content with whatever God provides. we got one final section to go through, and it's a powerful one on prophets. Prophets who are God's spokespersons, the de facto spiritual teachers. 
and a last line of defense. See, if, if judges and kings and priests all went astray, God would still have the last word through his prophets. And here's the point. God's people should follow godly leaders who are trustworthy to deliver God's words. Okay, God's people should follow godly leaders who are trustworthy to deliver God's words. Before Moses even mentions prophets, though, there's a paragraph that seems weirdly placed here. Look at verse 9. It says this. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or a charmer, or a medium, or a necromancer, or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. Why was this here? Here's why. These were all things that the Israelites could have been tempted to follow. Look at verse 9. It said, When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. And these were all places that the people of that day would go to for guidance. Guidance for, for making decisions, for knowing what was coming. Either by knowing the future or by shaping the future, even. George Athens explains that even child sacrifice's basic aim was to alter the future by changing the will of the gods through a sensationally violent sacrifice. Basically, these were all sources of guidance for people, and they were all bad leaders, leading people into evil practices in God's sight. But these were widespread in Canaan in that day, which is why they were told to purge the land. And why God's people were to make sure they didn't listen to them. As it said in verse 14, For these nations which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to listen to them. We too should be careful. This has not gone away in our day. We need to avoid any form of a cult or pagan practices that are still widespread today. That would be psychics or tarot cards or Ouija boards or horoscopes or dream psychology or spirit guides or whatever. These are, these are all very alluring things to people who want to connect with something beyond themselves. They want that guidance. But even if we're not tempted by that, we often attempt to accomplish similar things by, not, by seeking out guidance or advice or counsel or spiritual leading for decision-making from places other than God's word or God-given authority. I want you to, to seriously think for a minute. Where do you seek out guidance from? Where do you look for, for guidance? When, when life is hard and you want answers, where do you go? When you're worried about the future, what helps you plan or find peace? Who do you go to for advice? Who, what do you, who do you listen to, hoping to, to glean some wisdom from? Talk to a, a couple trusted friends or mentors or counselors? Do you read a few favorite authors or bloggers? Subscribe to select podcasts? Do you frequent a few bookmarked web pages? Or just go with whatever people post online? Go to Google. We've all got our, our popular human guides out there. Jordan Peterson, 
J.K. Rowling, Tim Keller, Ben Shapiro, Jen Hatmaker, Stephen Furtick, Rachel Hollis, Dave Ramsey, Malcolm Gladwell, Ellen, Kanye, Oprah, Dr. Phil, some of whom got a lot of good stuff to say, others not so much. But we're listening to them. We're listening to them, which means in a way they are leading us. So are we being careful and discerning about who we follow? If, we, if they are leading us to God's word, if they're leading us through God's wisdom, awesome! If not, be careful. Be careful. I sometimes wonder if there's really only one person we trust to guide us ourselves. We're, we are out there looking for guidance that, that strikes some inner chord inside of us. We, the only advice we accept is whatever makes us feel good about things. That we pick and choose from a, a cultural smorgasbord of opinions and ideas based on how much we like or appreciate what we hear. We do the same in the church, in the scripture. We'll even leave a church or a denomination because something just rubs us the wrong way. Essentially, we're gathering around us teachers who tickle our itching ears. I hate to break it to you, but you are not a good enough guide to guide yourself through life. Neither am I. You and I both need something more. No, no actually, someone more. Moses basically tells Israel here, don't listen to these false guides. Listen to the Lord. Listen to the Lord. He draws this stark contrast between the cultural influences around them and the way that God would speak to them through his prophets. Again, he says in verse 14, They listen to all these fortune tellers, to diviners, but as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. Verse 15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Now, this is a, a promise that God's guidance would not end with Moses, which was a legit concern for them. Moses had, had stepped into the gap at a very important time, even being a mediator for them. It says, it is to him you shall listen, verse 16, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. As a prophet, Moses had received God's words and then relayed them to the people. Using vivid imagery here, it's like God had actually put his words in Moses' mouth. And this is perhaps the greatest test for whether or not a spiritual leader is a godly leader. Are they delivering God's word rather than spewing their own opinions? We can listen to all kinds of voices in this world, and we don't need to be afraid of them. But should we, we should only truly listen in the fullest sense to those who speak God's words. We should judge any teaching in the church based on how it lines up with Scripture. So now I, I yearn and I strive to be trustworthy in delivering the truth and nothing but the truth to you. But I happily encourage you to be like the Bereans were to Paul and Silas in Acts 17. It says, receive the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Right? Don't take my word for it. 
take his. And if I'm not preaching his word, I might as well retire. But I got nothing worth saying on my own. Listening or not to God's words through God's messengers had high stakes. And it says in verse 19, And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So they spoke God's words in God's name. So whoever heard the prophet heard God. Moses then ends with some advice on how to tell if a prophet was true or false. It says, But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, How may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. I saw elsewhere, good predictions didn't guarantee authenticity. But here it makes it clear, bad ones proved inauthenticity. It proved they weren't true prophets. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Moses was only the first in a long line of prophetic guides that were to come. But Moses wasn't only talking about prophets, plural. There was something more significant. One singular future figure. A prophet par excellence who would guide them one day. None of the other prophets that followed Moses lived up to the stature of Moses. And after a couple millennia of Israel spectacularly failing to listen to their prophets, there came a man who fulfilled all these promises, and then some. One day, this man climbed a mountain with a few of his followers, and at the top he was met by none other than Moses himself, along with another great prophet, Elijah, and at that time, this man was transformed into this dazzling, glorified being, as bright as the sun. And God's voice spoke from heaven. Remember what it said? It said, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased, and don't miss it, listen to him. Listen to him. Anthony Salvaggio says that with those words, which echo the words of Moses, God unequivocally declared that the prophecy of Deuteronomy 18.15 had been fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ. And if there's still any doubt about this, one of the other guys that was up on that mountain that day was the Apostle Peter. And after Jesus rose, died and rose again, Peter came out and he preached this. Quoted Moses. And Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Do you get it? Okay. God raised up his prophet. He came and he was like Moses in remarkable ways. Not just as a, a Jewish brother, but as a man who would mediate between God and man. And as someone who would lead a new, greater exodus out of bondage through his death and resurrection, leading people actually out of sin and death itself. He wasn't just a prophet like Moses, he far surpassed Moses, matching and exceeding him. Hebrews 3.3 3 says, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. And like we just read in Acts 3, Peter says that he was raised up to turn us from our wickedness. 
So have you been turned? Have you listened to Jesus? Obeyed his voice? Have you left your sin behind and run to him to devote your whole heart to him? If not, I I hope, I pray that you would hear his voice and that you would respond to his call today. And if Jesus has already turned you, turned you from your formerly wicked ways and his kindness, are you listening to him? Are you still listening? Are you listening daily? as he speaks through his word. He is the greatest prophet to ever live. Speaking God's words with authority. After all, the words of God were already in his mouth from day one. And don't forget this, he is also the judge judge of all men, the living and the dead, and he will come one day, appear in glory, and, and judge us all from his kingdom. Oh yeah, the prophet and judge who has a kingdom, because he's also the king of kings. First Timothy 6 says that he is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords. And finally, despite our falling short, Despite our failings, he stands before his Father in heaven as our mediator, as our great high priest, interceding for us by his once-for-all sacrifice. Thank God that he is the only and undisputed head of the church. No matter who we are, leader or follower, we must listen to him and follow him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, awaken on our, in our hearts today the glory of of Christ Jesus so that we can do nothing but run after him. Help us to do this, God. By your Spirit, help us to walk in these ways, in his footsteps. Help us to listen. Truly listen. And help us to follow. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.